0: I make no mistake about the fact that I really like this episode. That should probably be self-apparent, considering how many times I reference it. To this day, I refer to episodes of this variety as Lower Decks episodes. There's actually two separate types of episodes that tend to blur a little bit. One of them is Lower Decks, and one of them is Slice of Life. They can be the same thing, but the whole point of a Lower Decks episode is to basically do the same thing you always do from a different perspective, which adds to the dynamic and makes it generally more interesting. Uh, This is actually, start uh, that is to say, Next Generation's second Lower Decks episode, the first one being First Contact back in Season 3 or 4 or 5 or 6, or whichever it was. I don't remember. The point being... It's no surprise, then, that this one was brought to us by Rene Echeverria, because this is just kind of his shtick, isn't it? Because if you look at the bare bones of the episode, it is, in fact, a completely typical episode. There's really only one thing they do differently than normal, and that's... Well, no, actually, I I'd, I'd take that back. Even that's not... even that's still the same. So, yeah, no, completely typical episode. <clears throat> God, where do I begin? This was an episode... So, okay, season seven... I mean, we just had a lamentation, right? (laughs) Season 7, they were starting to have issues. Uh, Ronald D. Moore has gone on record saying that they just didn't have any kind of clear vision or any idea what they wanted to do. So they were just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and saying whatever. Uh, And that's pretty much exactly what happened here. They were running low on scripts and they were like, "Uh, uh," And it was Echeverry who came up with the idea, why don't we just move the camera? Now, it's worth noting they didn't just move the camera, because that's kind of the the difference between a good Lower Decks and a bad Lower Decks episode. A good Lower Decks episode is one in which you make the effort and time and work in order to actually really make a good episode from a different perspective. There have been a few works, not in Star Trek, at least not off the top of my head, where they'll just change the camera and that's it, and it's just kind of boring and flat. Anywho, <clears throat> of course, we see Cito, you know, by the time this episode goes live, this should be the first episode going live in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, if my, my calendar is correct, I believe it is, um, about a year ago from the time you're seeing this, I was actually playing in lore reloaded Star Trek Adventures episodes as another Cito, a Lieutenant Cito, so I guess I got promoted past her. But I actually specifically chose the same family name as her because of the fact that, you know, that she had this kind of pseudo-recurring element. She is, in fact, the same actress and character from The First Duty, which is actually referenced in the episode. The other thing I find fascinating, though, is apparently, and I actually have a quote here, from michael taylor uh, actually suppose excuse me this is a quote from jerry taylor about michael pillar excuse me let me get my words correct where she says in the early drafts of the script we left her death ambiguous because we thought we might pull her back in to help with some stories down the road when i mentioned this to michael he said absolutely not she's dead she stays dead That on undermine mind the whole episode so i said fine morning after michael saw the episode he said we can't let her stay dead we've got to bring her back she was wonderful Funnily enough, they tried multiple times in TNG and DS9 to bring her back. Uh, they have, uh, you know, now we can say with the advantage of hindsight, obviously that never happened. Instead, what happened is that the, all the ideas about what they were going to do with her kind of got processed into the episode hard time, which by this point I've already covered over on Deep Space Nine. The one where O'Brien spent 20 years in a prison in his mind. That one, just a really brief one. Yeah, fun stuff. What's really weird, though, is she's a recurring thing because she's from and she was going to come again and alexander enberg and i hope i'm saying that name correctly was also a recurring character except not really see he plays Taric in this episode and remember historically speaking voyager hasn't started yet and yet he will then play Vorik on voyager Similar to the Tom Paris thing, I have no idea why they decided to have the same character being played by the same actor, but they changed the name. I, I really don't know why that is, but I thought I'd mention it. Uh, Jerry Taylor has actually gone on record saying that, I no, twin brother, twin brother, don't, don't think about it. I, I do ca- kind of wonder if Vorik and Tarek both just kind of came from the fact that he's Jerry Taylor's son. But anyways, he, d- he doesn't do a bad job of Vulcan. In fact, this can probably sound horrible, but I think he would be a perfectly good Vulcan if not for Blood Fever, which kind of completely torpedoes the quality of the character. If we just kind of eject, eh, eh, hang on, eject Blood Fever from existence, I'd be willing to say he does a decent job as a Vulcan. He's not one of the better Vulcans, but you know, decent. Anyways... One last thing I wanted to comment on. This is the first time I ever heard of this, which, it just baffles me. I mean, maybe I'm just arrogant, but I'd like to think I know at least one or two things about Star Trek, having been following it since I was four. But apparently, there were rumors cycling around when this episode, Lower Decks, came out that this was going to be a backdoor pilot for Voyager. Keep in mind, Voyager had already been announced and cast and they'd already started doing filming work for Voyager. Like, they'd already... were starting to put out adverts about Voyager. We knew it was going to be following, you know, Kate Mulgrew, and I'm not going to go down the list of actors, but you get the idea. All the actors from, from Voyager. But apparently, and I'm just going to quote Jerry Taylor uh, word for word here, I don't know how that rumor got started. It was just a rampant rumor that would not die. I'm mystified by so many people thought that three middle-aged people, Rick, Michael, and myself, would ever create a series that had nothing but a bunch of young 90210 people in it. It was absolutely out of the question. Interesting way to shoot down that rumor. <clears throat> but whatever. Now, uh, okay, so obviously this episode is going live in 2021. Uh, I am recording this episode very early 2020 because I do all my stuff very far in advance. By the time this episode goes out, the Star Trek show Lower Decks should have started by, by the current schedule, which we don't even have a, an exact release date at this moment in time. I'm curious if it's going to be any good because, in direct response to Jerry Taylor's comment, I think a Lower Decks show would be pretty good. Although, if I'm being completely honest, I think what they really should do is have two main casts. Now, I know that wasn't really feasible back in the 90s. I do get it. I get that television has changed. Nowadays, you can have a show that basically follows two camera angles. I've actually posited this idea many times before when it comes to TNG. You know, keep following Riker over on the Lexington and keep following the rest of the crew on the Enterprise and have the two collide for Best of Both Worlds, that whole thing. Similar idea. Have regular recurring characters who are part of the lower decks. You can even cycle Barkley in there if you wanted to. And then have, you know, the rest of the characters who are the main characters or whatever. And we we just kind of swap back and forth depending on the episode, which gives you a lot of different perspectives options it gives you different ideas of possibilities but what's really funny about all that is that would violate the rules uh, i'm trying to find the exact quote uh, where is it where is it Uh, It's a quote here from Ronald D. Moore. It was a unique concept. There was a debate about how much it was going to be their show and how much it was going to be our show. Michael, because Pillar was basically running the show at this point, I think I've mentioned that. It was Pillar and Taylor. Uh, Michael said this is their show, which I thought was a good decision, especially since he usually says it has to be about our characters. Now, that's just an offhand reference, but... At this point in history, there were basically some very strict rules you had to follow, mostly because of Rick Berman, with regards to what happened on Star Trek. This also kind of bled over to the first couple of seasons of D-Space-9, and something that eventually would be pushed against in D-Space-9. It also is probably, in my opinion, the biggest reason why Voyager wasn't as great as it should have been. I like Voyager. I do. But that show was potential incarnate and didn't quite reach for it. In my opinion, one of the biggest reasons, therefore was because of their refusal to push past those lines. Anyways, I do want to talk about something else other than the behind-the-scenes perspective, and that's nitpicking. Now, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but i got some notes here that I wanted to uh, acknowledge. I'd like to take... what's fu- Okay, this is actually funny, so I was actually going to nitpick this myself, and then I found out that uh, the nitpicker's guide already did it for me, so I'm just going to quote them, even though I do have my notes here on the thing. But the reason I want to bring this up... I just want to challenge the idea... Because a few viewers have said... Oh, you're just a nitpicker, Lore. No, I'm not. Just just to drop all pretense and memeing and joking. No, I'm not. I have seen and know what actual nitpicking is. If I make an issue with the usage of the warp engine, or them being stupid about the transporter, or not tactically sound, or a character being an idiot, like Worf losing a fight to three Ferengi running birds of prey, for God's sake, you know, that I don't consider nitpicking. What I do consider nitpicking is the fact that this episode occurs three years after the first duty. That's what she says. However, the start date for the uh, the first duty is four five seven zero three point nine. This episode is four seven five six six point seven, which is a difference of 1862.8, point eight eighteen hundred start date units. And we already know that one thousand start date units equal about a year. What's actually really funny about this? I did a little more digging into that exact point. Because it bugged the crap out of me. And I've actually already brought it up with regards to Alexander. And I think there's something else that comes up with that. But anyways, the point being, um, there's... They have this this thing that kind of irritates the hell out of me, if I'm being honest. Where they just kind of assume a season occurs across a year. But the amount of time in between episodes is whatever the hell you want it to be. But also the fact that a season doesn't equal a year. And you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. So, if you ever wonder why the timeline of TNG is incredibly inconsistent, that's why. Next point. Oh, you want me to get nitpicky? Here's a fun one. So, <clears throat> during the junior officers' game, uh, the Ben, who totally should have been Whoopi Goldberg, I'll talk about that in a minute, bluffs the ensign with a king, jack, ten, and an eight. The ensign has two sixes and two sevens. Now I am just curious cuz I know some of you have been po- commenting on the poker games in this in the comment section. I've been reading your comments too. But uh, I'm actually curious how many of you looked at them and were like, "Well, hang on a second. That doesn't even begin to line up. Literally no matter what that other card is, he's not going to he's not going to beat two pair." <laughs> Maybe it's just how terrible the poker game... no, what, what this is is a continuity issue from the props department because they never comment on their hand. The only thing we have is the camera showing the hand, which the props people came in and laid the cards in front of the characters. So that's nitpicking. Moving on. So they decide to do crew evaluations every three months, apparently. And I got to say, with a crew of 1,000 being and a crew, crew evaluation being done by two people, that, I mean, I get that Riker's job as first officer is to be the, the, the main person in charge of personnel. That does make sense. This actually weirded me out, though, because even in the commercial industries that I've worked in, usually evaluations are done by your immediate superior, not the person in charge, or rather the person in charge of all personnel stuff. Like, I didn't go to the HR director and say, hey, how'd I do? No, I went to my boss. Funnily enough, apparently this is how it happens in several militaries as well, so I'm not sure what they were thinking on this one. Maybe they have already gotten their personnel, like, evaluations, and those evaluations are then tossed up to Riker and Troy. Because, to be clear, it does actually make perfect sense that Riker and Troy would be the two to have the final say on everything. Riker's in charge of personnel, and she's the frickin' shrink. So, okay, I'm with that. It's just weird the way they kind of present that. Meanwhile, they decide that in order to do these crew evaluations, they're going to do them in public, where anybody can hear whatever. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Is Ben shows up and then listens in and then carries it over to the junior table. We also have a very efficient introduction to the to the main characters of this episode, the junior staff. Um, and I do like that. I just wanted to comment on that very quickly because it's a nice quick establishment exposition kind of a thing. Here's him. He's got this thing. There's her. I mean, we've seen Ogawa before, so that's kind of a bit of a recurring element. We've got Torek, who's basically a typical Vulcan. Not much else to say there. And we've got Sito, who's just kind of amiable. And, of course, she's a recurring element as well. Good, good job. Good job. I mentioned the Whoopi Goldberg thing. I found no evidence of this, but I strongly suspect that this was supposed to be Guinan, not Ben. Not that I have anything against Ben. In fact, he actually does a pretty good job with the role. What I mean by that, though, is at several points I was just mentally replacing him with her and listening to the same lines said by her instead of him, and it it fits so seamlessly I wonder if it was written with that intent, and they just couldn't get a hold of her because... Whoopi Goldberg is a fairly larger star, and, you know, there's only so much that you can do with that kind of a guest role, and blah, blah, blah. So, just food for thought. I'm curious what you guys think on that. Anyways, so we come back from commercial, and this is another thing I like about this episode. There's a big threat, oh my gosh, and we need to move, and there's warp and damage, and uh, it was just a training simulator. First of all, I like that. I like the idea that the ship does those kind of training runs. It's actually funny, because that makes perfect sense to me, and... I don't think we've done a lot of these on this show. Usually, if they're going to do this kind of training thing, they actually do it on the holodeck, although I've actually commented on that before many, many years ago at this point when it came to them doing the little pseudo-battle. I can't remember the name of that episode off the top of my head, but it was nice to see. And more to the point, you notice that the main threat here becomes not the threat of the weak, but how the people are reacting to it. This is what I mean by the different perspective stuff. If we zoom out the camera for a second, what we see is an episode about we've got a Cardassian operative and he needs to get back and we need to sneak him over the border and and do all this tech, you know, we have to make the shuttle look like it's injured and we have to save his life with surgery and then we have to send him back with with a Bajoran in order to make it look real and blah, blah, blah. All of that is a typical episode of Star Trek. Probably wouldn't even be all that noteworthy. And that's the point. This is a Tuesday. The difference is this is a Tuesday from the perspective of those people rather than these people. And I hate to sound like like I'm just saying the obvious because I kinda am here. But again, I want to restress this because there's nothing special about the plot. Nothing. The thread of the week is still there. It just doesn't matter. Because what really matters is the dynamic and interaction between the characters, and how it matters to them. This came to me especially in the the battle scene, because there's a noticeable pause before Cito locks phasers and fires. And Riker actually calls her out on it, and she says flat out, this was the issue. And Riker says, okay, yeah, makes sense to me, here's a way you can get around that. Just... Little stuff like that, you know, how do we adapt and, you know, trying to jockey for position. I also like the fact that two friends are both running for ops, that both of them are trying to get into, the, they get promoted, basically, right? Which actually does happen to him. By the way, I, I do want to say, uh, well, actually, let me move forward first. So I like that. Next thing is we then see Tarek, who is down in engineering with LaForge. And Tarek's just like, oh, geez, what do I do? Um... I'm sorry, that's not true. LaForge is the one who says, oh, geez, because Tariq is um, a little bit too typical of a Vulcan. He pushes too hard. Oh, yes, I've got ideas for things we can do, and I've got this, and I did this, and we should try this immediately. Uh, I'd rather see the test results for it and go over it myself. Well, but I did a good job. That's nice. I'd still like to do it first. <laughs> now, LaForge is a pretty amiable guy, so he's pretty friendly with, with Tarek. but you can tell he's just kind of like, dude, just Eh. Because Tarek is pushing to. I keep wanting to say Vorik, by the way. You, you might notice I keep stumbling over that a bit. Because it's the same freaking character. Anyways. <clears throat> but that, of course, ties into the other guy. Alright. I've been deliberately not saying his name this whole episode. I'm very curious if any of you can tell me the name of the male, you know, uh, red shirt ensign guy who's jockeying for promotion in this episode. Just from memory. I'm actually curious if anybody of you can tell me, because even though a large amount of the episode centers around him, he's not all that memorable to me, by memory. Now, I stress that word, because when I rewatched the episode, it became clear to me that he's actually the main character of this piece. Even though you'd think Seto is, it's actually a lot more about him and the way that he reacts and interacts with the others. They also have some good character stuff for him. It, I mean, they have good character stuff for all of them, but you get my point. He has the most good character stuff, I would say. Although, I would agree that Seto has an equally large amount of good character stuff. Anyways, so he pushes too hard, too, of course. Because, I mean, why freaking wouldn't he? He really wants to get promoted. Oh, my God. I'll come back to that point. So then we have the filler scene with Crusher and Ogawa. That scene was, was dumped in as pure filler. It kind of worked for me right up until they started talking about Ogawa's love life. Not that I don't care. I mean, okay, that's not true. I absolutely do not care. But it was just nice to see the scene of the two actresses acting off each other and talking about her career and blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, by the way, Guy. Didn't work for me. Moving on. So, Lavelle, that's a name, Sam Lavelle. Ensign Lavelle is sitting there, and he's trying to figure out how to interact with Riker. And he sees that Ben, a.k.a., uh, and just, it has a casual rapport with Riker. Okay, cool. So he goes over. And I, how many of you have ever jumped into a situation with an idea and no plan of attack? <laughs> I bet it's all of you. In fact, I'm going to raise my hand on that one. It's like, okay, I'm going to walk over there. I'm going to talk to her. I didn't prep anything to talk about. I didn't think of a single thing to say. What do I do? Oh, God. Um. Yeah. Do you like bread? I got a French loaf, Pog. Bye. Yeah, no, we we don't prep anything, right? And so that's exactly what happens to Lavelle. He just walks over like, hi. No, I was just, um, I was coming to, to get a drink. I, um, uh, Canadian, right? Yeah, my grandfather was Canadian. You're, you're not Canadian. Oh, they both get a lot of stuff. St- st- I, 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 I got to go. <laughs> he just stumbles his way through the whole thing. Oh my god! Hashtag been there. Anyways, <clears throat> so then we get back to the A plot, which is, you know, oh god, we're 5,000 clicks from the border, which in space terms is basically at the point where your nose is touching the, the line. Like, I'm not, what? Well, I'm not on the line. What are you talking about? Um, <clears throat> and we find out that there's a a pod, which is 50,000 clicks out. And I was like, Wait, they can't beam for 50,000 clicks? That seems a bit weird, so I decided to look into that because I'm a geek, and it's my job. Turns out, the functional operational range of a Galaxy Class' transporter is 40,000 clicks. Go figure. Now, if you want to get the operational range across history, that gets a lot trickier, because in TOS it ranged from 16,000 to 20,000 to 30,000 to 60,000, depending on the specific episode. And if we go with the Kelvin line, well, I mean that's just um, well, let's see, carry the two, all of the distance, infinite distance. They they could just beam from Earth to Kronos. I'm never letting that go. Anyway, so props to them to actually having to solve this problem without crossing over the border. Nice little tidbit. So we see a little bit of how the episode is working out because. Like, they even say this line flat out later. You know, not everyone is going to be told everything that's happening about ship operations, right? And so we see how it impacts each of them. Uh, Tarek is the one who's like, who's like, I'm going to do extra work because I'm trying too hard. And LaForge is like, no, don't do that. Like, oh, okay. Ogawa is kicked out of the medbay as the Cardassian is beamed in. And Sito is the one on guard to prevent anyone except for senior staff from entering to... Figure out what's going on. Just nice little tidbits. And of course, Lavelle is just being kept in the dark in the con. Little tidbits like that. This then leads to a nice little bit where Picard drags C2 through the mud, basically, in that wonderfully Patrick Stewart way that he has. What I love most about that is he's doing it for two reasons. The first and most obvious is that he is trying to push her to see how. Uh, I suppose to see how good she is at uh, handling that kind of a thing on her feet. How good she would be at keeping a secret, how good she would be under fire, etc., etc. I'll get back to that in a minute, though. So, need-to-know basis is one of those interesting things, because we're human beings. I mean, I know not everyone involved here is a human being, but we're human beings, right? It's kind of in our nature to speculate. It's what we do. So, you look at that, and you think, okay, well, here's the pieces I have, and I have an outline of a puzzle. So, naturally, all of them are speculating and trying to debate on what exactly is happening and why. Uh, This then leads immediately into the poker game, which I'll talk about in just a second. You can't stop the mind, and you can't stop the speculation. It's one of those interesting things, because you kind of have to stop the speculation at a certain point, or at least the external speculation. And just keep it to yourself, which is something that uh, Torek and Ogawa have to do by the end of the episode. So then we get to the poker game. I already nitpicked that. We'll move on. We'll move on. Can I first say that this is a really good example of editing? They just kind of splice back and forth between the two games, and there's smooth transitions. You know, I think you're bluffing. Cut to the other game. I'm not bluffing. You know, little stuff like that. It's, It's fairly minor stuff, but it's well done, and I wanted to give it praise where praise is due. But both do show a bit of a mirror of each other because at both times they're trying to de to, you know, to relax and recoup from work, but in both cases they're talking about almost nothing but work. And you'll notice the conversation starts off relatively pleasant and shifts very quickly into job, which shifts very quickly into stress and what they need to vent about. Now, Lavelle, of course, is freaking out about, you know, what's going on with Riker and how he's dealing with that. It is interesting to note, by the way, though, that when Lavelle... And this is why I say Lavelle's got some good character stuff. Up until now, he's been portrayed fairly one-note. Except here, Cito is freaking out because of the chewing-out she got from Picard. Lavelle is the first person to jump to her defense and say, No, you deserve that role. Keep in mind, he is in direct competition with her for that same role. And yet he is the one who instantly says, No, you deserve that. Picard is completely unfair for pushing that on you. Nice little tidbit. C2, of course, is just kind of, you know, frazzled because of the, the Picard scene she just had to go through. I mean, you, you get the, the the low-yield Picard at your face. I mean, that, that's just it's hard to deal with, right? <clears throat> Lavelle then starts talking about the Riker situation. What I like about this is this is... I, I wonder if Echeverria is pulling from personal experience. Speaking as someone who has been both a worker and a manager there is something really horrible about the dynamic between the two. Because both, is, in, in situations where you care, both are analyzing the other and arguably overanalyzing. And that's exactly what we see here. Riker is overanalyzing Lavelle and thinking, oh, he's just too eager to please and I don't care for him and blah, blah, blah. And it is Troy has to push for him and try to re- readjust his pers- perspective and say, you know, maybe you're being a little bit too unfair on him because of your bias on the matter. Meanwhile, he thinks Riker doesn't like him, and yet the others point out that Riker still thinks he is in contention for the role and for the promotion, which is, you know, something that is, is, is a valid thing to keep in mind. It's just interesting to see the stressors that both of them are going through because of the other. It's a nice little, little thing there. And I feel like, in many ways, Lavelle was being designed to be an insight into what Riker was probably like when he was younger. Then, of course, we see Vorik. Now, this is actually one of the more interesting aspects, in my opinion. Because we... I just said Vorik. Oh, my God. So, in my notes, I actually wrote down his name as Vorik here. Oi, Taurik. It's even said the same. Taurik is stressing about La Forge. Now, that's a pretty minor touch, and it's, it's satisfied almost immediately. He has the least character of anyone in this one. But Torek is like, oh my god, you know, I hope I have not irreparably damaged my relationship with the commander of the Forge. This is a nice touch, because as I've said many, many times, Vulcans are not robots. They do have emotion, they do care. And they do have a strong sense of morality to guide them. It's just that they tend to be very controlled and very precise in exactly how they move and what they do. And this shows that Torek does absolutely care both about his career and his interactions with others. He does value LaForge's opinion of him. Thus, when LaForge comes down and offers, Hey, I was going to go do some extra work. You want to join me? He's he's clearly pleased by that. That would be excellent. Yes. and, And off they go. Nice stuff. Nice stuff. This then leads to, Worf pulling Sito aside, and go, making her go through the Jacques Block, which is completely made up, of course. Defend yourself with a blindfold. Very minor note: you'll notice that she still has a pretty good idea where he is, even though she's blindfolded. I mean, that makes sense. She could hear the breathing. She could hear the movement of the mat. I just wanted to point it out that she wasn't doing terribly, even though she was losing. She was doing pretty good given the circumstances. Which, of course, leads to him saying, "Very well." You'll notice each time he says defend yourself, by the way, defend yourself. Each time he reiterates that point. Now, we know where this is going, it's actually fairly self apparent. But he is right about one thing, it does in fact take courage to say the test is unfair. Some people will then push back against that, and this kind of varies depending on circumstances and organization, ideology and all that fun stuff, but... being willing to stand up and say this is unfair what you are doing to try and push me in this manner is unacceptable that actually does take courage no really i want you to do me a favor and picture that you are an ensign on the enterprise and you have just had a lashing a verbal lashing from jean-luc picard how much how difficult would that be be real how difficult for, would that be for you to go and say, sir, I think you are out of bounds for what you said to me. So she does it, and we find out that, of course, it was a test. This is the second reason he was pushing her so hard, because he was trying to see the quality of her character and the quality of what kind of person she would be with regards to being able to deal with something that is um, above and beyond... I will admit this is actually probably one of the weakest parts of the plot because that little character bit is nice, but it doesn't really have anything to do with her qualifications for the mission, so whatever. Either way, what I really like is that Picard admits that he requested her for his ship once she finished you know once she finished going back to the Academy. He wanted to make sure she had a fair chance to prove herself. And that's kind of the interesting thing, because she has this is this is something that a lot of people don't seem to think about. It's one thing to say you're sorry. It is another thing to spend four years proving you're sorry. To actually take the action and actually put in the work and actually deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And she has done so. And she has pushed back and hard, continuously, as she does to Picard here. So, I like that. And it does, of course, talk very well of Picard's overall command approach. What I like to call the fatherly approach. The fatherly touch. You know, being firm but kind. He did, in fact, give her that chance. And it got her killed. Anyways, so, then the episode kind of wraps up. I actually, funnily enough, this is like uh, 15 minutes, I think, before the end of the episode, but I have very little to say about the termination, because we'll get there. But we find out about the mission, we find out about the A-plot, it's not all that interesting, except for one very minor point. He says he's been in the military, uh, what, did I write down his name? Uh Jorat Dahl, Jorit Dahl, the Cardassian, uh, he says he's been in the military pretty much all his life. And this is the second inter- uh, little tidbit about the fact that the Cardassian Union has undergone a substantial shift within basically the last two generations. Because this lines up with what we saw over in Chains of Command with the Gull, whose name I can't remember... Um, God, I can't think of his name now. Oh my gosh, that's going to bug me. You know who I'm talking about. Gull Awesome. <laughs> Played by the incredibly amazing David Warner. He also mentioned how Cardassia was not doing so hot right up until basically he himself was now a teenager or an adult. right? And then, and then the military kind of turned that around. and People starving on the streets, etc. This is actually something that's referenced several times in DS9 as well. What's interesting, though, is that doesn't quite line up with this because the idea here is, well, the military used to be worth something and back when we were poor and poverty-stricken, but then we became a horribly vicious conquering power and now we're idiots. Unless he means that the military, when they became a conquering, consuming power, is when he was proud to be part of the military, in which case, okay, buddy. (laughs) But, um... One little tidbit to add on to all of this. So this is a federation joint operation in order to try and add additional information in or to prevent war between the Cardassians and the Federation. This is just a couple months in real time, so just a couple months in fiction time before the Maquis. No, really. The actual first episode to ever actually introduce the concept of the Maquis for real as in the actual Maquis thing, is... Oh gosh, I can't think of it all of a sudden. It's not, it's not long from now. It's, it's in Season 7 here. Uh, Journey's End, is that it? Yeah, I think it's Journey's End. But uh, Preemptive Strike is when they really kind of come into their old. But Preemptive Strike actually came out after the episode The Maquis which really introduced the Maquis. Remember, by this time, Voyager was already a thing. They already knew about the Maquis, and they already knew what they were going to go with, so they wanted to introduce the Maquis in both TNG and DS9. I've actually talked about that extensively back in DS9. So, the, the Maquis are about to become a major player on the board pretty much right after this episode, in terms of historical context. Just interesting to think about. I wonder how much, if at all, this influenced that. Final thought. By the way, quick aside, though, I just want to make this point. Um, regardless of the Cardassian Union's you know, starvation, military conquering power, Germany, blah, blah, blah thing, uh, the occupation, that is to say the Bajoran occupation, has been going on for 51 years as of this episode. So, anyways, this is the anti red shirt episode. This is the final point I want to make here. I've complained so many times about the red shirt concept because the red shirt concept is stupid. It's trying to make you care by ticking off a, a check, check mark on a checklist and saying, here, look, this happened. Give a damn. P- please. Look, someone died. The situation's serious. Now, you can tell because someone died. What was their name? Uh, um, uh, why does that matter? What was their rank? Wh- uh... Like, that's what I hate about the red shirt concept. This episode does the exact opposite of From the 38 minute to the 44 minute mark, which is a solid six minutes of a 45 minute episode. Six minutes is dedicated towards the death of Cito ja- uh, Jackson? Jackson. Oh God, I can't remember her name. All to Ensign Cito. Six minutes. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but when I say six minutes, I mean six minutes solid. The episode doesn't stray from this point for six minutes as they all deal with the consequences and the threat and... The, the reality of it, and, the, and trying to cope with it, and, you know, Lavelle is just freaked out because he got the promotion because she died, and he's worried about her, and he actually is probably the most worried about her of the other ones. It's another character beat for him. Worf, of course, he's kind of to blame here, as he knows, and yes, she died in Valor, and blah, blah, blah. But it's a good bit. It's a good bit, and I like this. If for no other reason, changing the perspective is nice, but really making the death of one minor character matter... Is even better if it's not obvious I rather like this episode which is good because we're having an interesting array of episodes coming up just looking ahead here Uh, next is thine own self okay okay that's not too bad that's not too bad we'll see you next time then